Ralph Jackson of Lansons is a man after my own heart, a financial services lobbyist with a keen interest in pensions. In this episode, we talk about policymaking, lobbying, and the complicated art of managing relationships with politicians and civil servants who keep changing their jobs every five minutes. Ralph also very kindly makes a prediction about whether Boris will lead the Conservatives into the next general election. I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get into it, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to the Financial Services Unplugged podcast wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And of course, to leave a favourable review if you feel so inclined. I bumped into Steve. Uh, you know the Times political columnist Matt Chorley? Yes. Of course you do. So I quite like Matt Chorley, and I went to see his stage throw about three years ago when he was doing a kind of post-Brexit tour. And I went to see him in Bloomsbury with my sister, as it happens, because she's quite into that sort of thing. And I bumped into someone from the industry I knew <laughs> standing in the queue outside, and we both had a laugh about that. And then... So Matt Chorley was doing his tour and he was in Bristol a week or so ago and and Steve Webb was there so, yeah, right, okay. with his son. So oh, we, nice. Yeah, we had a nice chat. So still I, lives down there then? So he Maybe. still lives in sort of just north of Bristol, yeah, sort of south Gloucestershire. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, I mean, in, where is in the constituency that he failed to keep. Yeah, and I mean that, I so look, I remember, I mean, I think 2015 was kind of interesting for a couple of things, it was interesting the way the Lib Dems just got swept out with the tide in England and the way Labour got swept out with the tide in Scotland. And when the tide's against you, it doesn't matter how good an MP you are, does it? And we saw a lot of good Scottish Labour MPs go. And, and I mean, Steve was, a re- I think, both a good minister and a good constituency MP, and that didn't count for anything. When the no, wind's against you. No, no, it doesn't. And, and obviously, and we can reflect upon this, but the outcome from the coalition government is that Conservatives won, Liberal Democrats lost effectively yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of the, who stayed on in power. And then 2016, it all went badly wrong for some of them after the referendum result. But the um, when you do lose good parliamentarians, is one of the things that I'll probably be discussing today. When you do lose them, you do miss them, really because of both the insights that they have, particularly somebody like Webb, uh, with the background and expertise and, you know, passion. Uh, you know, that's the right word to be associated with, with the topics that they have. Then you know, you know something's missing when they've kind of gone and the collective body is weaker as a result of that. And, and I think there's a little bit in our system, which doesn't necessarily always maintain that. And that's not saying that, you know, something needs to be changed within the system, you know, but, you know, know, ironically, nearly all of the expertise, capability, experience in and around the topics that we're going to be talking about sits on the red benches, not the green benches. Yeah, no, agreed. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, you remember Anne Begg, Dame Anne Begg, and and, and also Greg McClymont was another one. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, Greg was, Greg, I mean, he was up against a tough opponent with Steve Webb, but I thought, I thought Greg did a good job. And then, oh, no, sorry, you've lost your seat. Bye. It's tough business. I remember yeah. being on a panel with Greg and Mark Hoban, yeah. um, bizarrely Warwickshire cricket ground, and a good audience. Yeah, we were not only violently agreeing with each other in some respects in terms of the direction then of pension policy. 
But 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 the way in which both you know Mark Hoban and Greg McClymont were approaching it was it, it wasn't adversarial or tribal. It was something that was um, you know for the better outcome for the public, not necessarily to be associated with um, you know better outcome for us in government, which Hoban then was or for what Labour might see as the better policy that they were putting forward. It was that, that there was, seemed to be a genuine desire through those individuals at that time to try and create consensus and to move forward. Okay, so maybe pensions doesn't lend itself quite as much to the sort of adversarial tribalism that we see in some areas of politics as some other policy areas do. Maybe it's easier to get consensus on pensions than in some other areas. But I mean, so Angela Rayner worked on pensions for a wee while before she, yeah. she, you know, her meteoric rise up through the ranks of the Labour Party. Yeah. I mean, she's one I really liked dealing with her when she was briefly on pensions. And, you know, I mean, I sort of warmed to her as a person. I think she's, she's got great character. I really hate the way she's one of the more adversarial ones. You know, Tories are just automatically bad. You know, anything to do with Tories is just bad. And, and that aspect of politics I find slightly distasteful when it, when it you know, I, I like it when you can have sort of debates about policy that reach some kind of a consensus. I and, think so, because that's what we're in here for. You and I have been in this game a long while and, and, and clearly have reached agreement in terms of some of those issues that you just outlined. Uh, it doesn't always have to be like that. I think, you know, because I've, I've lobbied on a wide range of things, but on, on this for a long period of time too. But where the topic meets the public is where the politician clearly has to pay more interest in terms of what, what the outcomes might mean for them. So here, so if you're either a pensioner who is saving to be one, then it, it matters. It, it, it matters to the elected MP to understand a little bit more than they need to do, for example, than around social housing. Probably a bad example, but nonetheless, or around defence spending. And therefore, more are interested in it because more of their constituents will be asking them about things. Now, it's not necessarily, therefore, a topic which is going to always achieve that degree of consensus because there is an element of concern around some of the ways in which a government will, for example, handle triple lock or how they want to take forward you know, auto-enrolment to a higher level of contribution for individuals and what that therefore might mean in terms of the messaging. So it's not always going to be an agreeable process. But, you know, in the last 20 years, I think we've come a long way from it being almost a pariah uh, where, where only a few people would know how it worked through to many more people being not only involved, engaged, but it's become a critical part, as I indicated to you, a critical part of the economy in terms of being a bedrock for everybody in terms of their, their future livelihoods. The fact that it's not so much on everyone's agenda is, I think, a disappointment, frankly. But um, that's not for lack of attention. So as we go into next week's local election, for example, uh, whilst it might be there from a local authority perspective in terms of uh, one of the range of issues like um, bin collection and other things, by the time we get to the 2024 election, where will it be on the ranking of this is one of the things we need to sort out? 
I, I think it ought to be there consistently. I don't think it should be some of the things that we've had in the past where a periodic pensions bill becomes a pensions act and five years later you kind of tweak it and try to do more with it. I think this should be a means by which you have almost like an annual event a review of policy, which is probably undertaken independently, but nonetheless for the benefit of parliamentarians, so that people are aware of where the nation's savers are at or where the need is at to save more. And I think if we had that, then it'd be much more likely that more people would be engaged in it, politicians would take it much more seriously, and the media would report upon it more widely than in the very specialised areas that you and I know. Do you think we should have, as some have suggested, we should have just a permanent pensions commission? You know, look at what look at what Adair Turner did back in the early 2000s. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. he was given a mandate by Gordon Brown and got that consensus, this is how we fix pensions. And auto-enrolment auto came out of that and cross-party consensus. And it worked. You know, 80% participation rates across workplace pensions now. Wow, fantastic. And then, thanks, we move on. Should we just have this permanent august body of wise heads just advising government all the time? I think there is sp- there's space for a discussion around what it should look like. But look, I, I do agree there has to be a consistent input. I, I, I would like to see an equivalent to that which the OBR provides for the Treasury, actually. So an, an independent watchdog, if you like, but not only for WP and DWP and Treasury, but equally for a pensions regulator as well. Whether the pensions regulator should have some kind of remit to do this, I don't know. But I think there should be some form of quasi-body quasi-judicial body, not not necessarily quasi-political body, rather, mm-hmm. that, that has a standing mandate to both report upon and, and indicate progress of what, what the next level of change might look like. Yeah. So and we, we've had a lot of development over the, you know, the, just in the last period. I mean, you mentioned 2015, and we clearly, obviously, you know, that was the period in which we we had pensions freedoms, mm-hmm. we had auto-enrolment, the development of NEST prior to that, so there's been a lot of development, but nonetheless, I don't think there's always a degree of understanding of what that therefore means. There still is a degree of confusion about advice and guidance, huh. for example, and 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 that will not go away. You know, and after RDR, it's still clear that there is no clear understanding of some of those issues in a much more reduced advised marketplace. But nonetheless, I I could conceive of something of a permanent nature. Whether or not people would say, is it necessary? It's a big component part of government spending. So you could argue that it ought to be necessary on that basis. You could argue that the demographics indicate that, and the lower savings rates indicate that, it should be every government's concern to understand what the future generations are going to both contribute to and therefore have access to at some point at which whatever is called retirement then actually kicks in. You'd think it should be a responsible government that wants to have a much better handle on that than that we have right now. I, I don't disagree with you about that, Ralph whilst always accepting that ultimately ministers have to take responsibility for the decisions that get made. So good advice going into the decision-making process from uh, an independent body. You use the analogy of the OBR. To me, that makes sense. But in the end, it's got to be the the minister in in the DWP or in the Treasury, wherever we're looking. They're the ones who have to make the ultimate decisions, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's where we both have a paucity of 
quality, and I'm not reflecting at all on current occupants or previous occupants. But the, but you know, to go back to the original discussion around um, you know people being elected and what what they're interested in over the last two cycles of elections, the number of people who've come from a professional background, including business background, and more specifically understanding investment, has just decreased significantly. So those those who probably bring a degree of expertise into the House, want to serve on public policy, for example, are, are not as great as they once were. Then the, the, the issue which uh, is always there at the heart of it, which you correctly identify, is that the, the permanent basis of development of policy amongst the officials and, and putting papers up to ministers for them to determine what that policy might, might look like, again, depends upon the quality of the civil service and the, um, the degree to which they are as au fait with as they ought to be, not only to the domestic nature of pensions policy, but the international picture in terms of what is happening in other parts of the world, in terms of innovation and development amongst savings. And I think that, again, is where we've probably lost a little bit of traction. Okay, so let me, chal- let me challenge you on that, Ralph, okay? Because let me just throw a few things into the mix. I mean, first of all, of course, we got Baroness Ros Altman and yep. and Baroness Greengross and others, you know, who are sitting sitting in the other uh, in the other house. But also, you've got MPs like Gareth Davis, who's relatively yep. recently arrived, um, and who has you know a background in investments. You've got people like Nigel Mills, who sat on committees and have shown a consistent interest in financial services. Harriet Baldwin, who now sits on the Treasury Committee, I think, and who again has shown an ongoing interest in financial services. You've got people like Stephen Timms, who has been a minister and who now chairs the Work and Pensions Committee. So he's, you know, scrutinising the work of, of the government. You've also got, of course, the Pensions Policy Institute, which is a you know, fantastic organisation, does a lot of the intellectual heavy lifting. And you've also got, outside of government plenty of people who work in industry who are, you know, through the good offices of people like yourself, Ralph, who are very happy to feed their opinions and insights and research into government to help with the decision-making process. So there is quite a lot of resource available. No, there is. No, there is. I'm not, I'm not saying there isn't. I'm saying that all of those names and individuals and organisations that you cited are absolutely vital. What, 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 I'm saying is that it doesn't appear to be in terms of the wider net of capability in Parliament particularly, mm. is that the, the, the degree of depth that, um, that I think should be necessary and understanding of the, these issues is, is there now as it was once several years ago. And are you, are you talking specifically about the House of, Par- of the Commons there? And- the, the Commons, particularly more so than the Lords. The Lords is where the capability probably sits and the experience sits, but nonetheless, the influence and the opportunity to, to change things is not there. The power on the green benches is, is what we're talking about and the understanding on the green benches. So ju- just reflecting upon that yeah, from a slightly different perspective, the model that's now in place in terms of paying for social care, the increased national insurance tax to pay for social care. Difficult, uh, almost reversed, 
recently before it came into play this month. I think that's an interesting model going forward for the contributory principle around pensions and savings in, in general, because the government determined that actually something needed to be done about it, whether or not this was from the pandemic or whether or not actually it's a, it's a long-running sore, which has probably been the case rather than necessarily pandemic-related. But nonetheless, something was done about it. Dilnot didn't quite get to the point of, a, of, of reaching a conclusion when, when his review undertook the same analysis several years ago. Mm. But nonetheless, what we've got now is actually you're going to pay for something that you're going to benefit from going forward. And that kind of model is something that might want to be looked at independently, I think, but with input from people like you, Tom, and others who have always consistently tried to put a uh, reasoned debate about reform. I think that should be something that might want to be looked at on a more permanent basis. Therefore, when the parliamentarians come to look at this, then they'll have a much more informed judgment because their constituents will be more interested about what they're likely to get if they're part of the process of paying for what they're likely to get. And I think that will mean a much better understanding of all of the issues in and around what is quite a complex topic. Well, and yeah, so I was, I was going to go on to say, on both on social care and on pensions there appears to still be vast problem of, of, of ignorance, of, of people yeah. not... Uh, now, that's, kind of, that's a bad word to use. Pe- people just don't understand how the systems work. So when it comes yeah. to social care provision, they don't understand the trade-offs between local government and, and national government. They don't understand how the cap works. They don't understand that it does... You know, the, the, the calculations don't cover the, the, um, the accommodation costs. They don't understand how the accumulation towards the cap works. I mean, and actually on social care, it appears it appears to me, and I don't claim to be an expert in this area, but I've, I've, I've kind of looked at it, that if you, if you have no money at all, well, fine, you're just, you're just going to end up with your local authority picking up the costs. If you have a lot of money, if you're some wealthy lobbyist, Ralph, then you'll be fine because, because even though you might end up spending £100,000 on your social care, you're still going to have enough money left over afterwards that it's not really going to dent your wealth. It's the people sort of in the lower middle levels of affluence who might only have two or £300,000 in their house or you know, a £100,000 pension pod who could end up seeing the bulk of their savings eaten up by their social care costs, even under the new system. But it's not easy to work out what it's going to look like for you as an individual until you're actually in the machine. And, yeah, and right. to some extent, I think the same is true of pensions. And what I quite like about what Guy Opperman has been trying to do is to simplify and demystify pensions. And it feels like we still need a lot more of that. But I'd be really interested in your thoughts around all of that. I know, I, I, I completely agree. And apart from the fact that you've completely mischaracterized me, but there we go. Um, that, that's what you're like. But nonetheless, as a friend, I'll let you, I'll let you have that one. But the... The simplification process is quite interesting because when you when you look at both of those areas, so both social care and pensions, you go, oh, it's just too difficult, mate. I, I can't even get my head around it in terms of what you're trying to do. And, and therefore, and you cite Guy as a, a good example of somebody who tries to be inclusive and bring people into the conversation so they can understand what he's trying to achieve. I think that you know, he's a very good example of a, of a good politician who's well into his brief, and I'll come back to the, what, what, what that therefore might mean, but well into his brief, who really does want to make a difference and a change. That's likely to be a, a much more better formula for anybody to understand that 
they can get involved because somebody's one wanting to listen to them but two explaining to them what it means for them the problem i think and you're quite right in respect of social care is that it is not understood enough and the likely explanations have just led to more confusion and until you reach the point of inflection where you are likely to need it then you don't really go into detail to understand it the point i'm making the principal point i'm making is that the model which says we're going to take a degree of your earnings to help contribute to something that you may well need in the future is i think a simplistic enough way for the people to understand what that looks like but then again people don't understand tax or national insurance and what that pays for they probably realize that it goes into some kind of broad pot which pays for defence of hospitals and education, all sorts of things, but nonetheless, they don't really understand what it means to them individually. Can I just pick up on the point of experience and your site, Guy Hopperman? And having done this a long time, like you, and have experienced a lot of the individuals that you've indicated before. In fact, I saw Ros Altman yesterday, and in fact, I saw David Willits yesterday. Oh, just throwing those in there. Yeah, very yeah, good. Just wandering around yesterday <laughs> as you do across the parliamentary state. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you look at the average tenure of the person who's had the responsibility or the title pensions minister. Right. And it's not a fantastic... Well, actually, in some respects, it's probably better than housing ministers, uh, for, as another example that I know well. But the longest-serving pensions minister, you will, will know, is, uh, is Mr. Webb, who served uh, something over 1,800 days. And Guy Opperman is coming quite close. Now. Coming up on the rails now, isn't he, Guy? He's got he about two six, months to go, I think, to, to overtake. 1,600 days, it yeah. seems. But then the average is around 350 days of the, yes. of the other 12 yeah. that has had posts since, in post since 1998. So... Is, is that enough time? Is around a year enough time to get to understand the brief, to get on top of your officials, to get around all of the interested parties, including companies involved, the think tanks that you cite? Is that enough to kind of get your head around, here's what I'm going to do, try to make a change? Now, the reason why Steve Webb and Guy Opperman were able to and have made changes and consistently therefore try to progress this is because they were given enough time to do so. Mm. And, and I think there is something around that element of get the right person if you can in the right post and just keep with them. And the, the partnerships, so the, the, whoever was Secretary of State is equally interesting because they don't always last so long, as well as the pensions ministers. So within government, you know, your listeners will know that, that you know, whilst it sits uh, from a policy perspective in DWP, the department which really oversees all aspects of how it really operates and how it's to be funded is the Treasury. All so, roads lead back to the Treasury, don't they? Yeah, so the read across to the pension minister has to be that whoever's in charge of financial services policy within the Treasury has to have that degree of permanence, you know, if, if they could at the same time as the pensions minister because they, they they need to get their heads together would clearly happen prior to pensions freedom and 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 that i think has got to be you know one of the things which any government would, would want to address i don't the know how, i don't know how long john glenn's been in post but it's been a few years now hasn't it three years at yeah. least or more yeah, yeah. john glenn he's another example of a very good minister you know fully appraised of his brief i've got a lot of time for john uh, not, not only knows how to engage, but is really committed to want to engage more 
with all of the different stakeholders he's got. He's got many. He's got like 10 different areas of responsibility yeah. within the Treasury, including the regulator. So it, it is the case that you know, you've got some politicians who you know, are right for the job and, 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 you know, and might be considered to be moved for whatever reason and may say, well, no, I, I want to do this. I, I quite like this. And therein lies the issue. You know, you're elected, you know, on day one. You, if you're fortunate to be part of the, the winning party, then you might get a preference as a, of a minister. But you don't know thereafter how long you're going to last within a five-year time frame. You know, Webb lasted nearly all of the coalition government, which is probably unique in what it has been in terms of pensions ministers since since the Brown era. Yeah, and I just, I'm, I mean... I've been I've been worried we're going to lose Guy, you know, because because he's done such a good job for so long. But it's so much of it is down to patronage, and I think with this prime minister more than most, he he, he plays his favourites. I mean, he had a he sort of cleared out the Remainers, didn't he, pretty quickly. And then actually, you know, Guy's publicly said, "Look, I'm I'm a Remainer," so and I think he supported Michael Gove in the Tory leadership election, so. Mm. I think it's, 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 it's a testament to Guy that he's lasted this long in Boris Johnson's government. But I, 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 I've been worrying, worrying recently that we're going to lose Guy and then, and then we'll have to, you know, it's like playing snakes and ladders. You go all the way back down and start again. And I think we've been a bit spoiled with first Steve Webb and then, and then Guy Opperman. And we had this sort of brief interregnum with Ross and then Richard Harrington. But since then, since then, it's, it's been a period of relative stability. And I think that, that does make a difference, doesn't it? It does make a, a significant difference because people like us and, and people involved in the game of influence in and around this, this topic know who they're going to be talking to. So the, the officials have changed more than the minister, for example. Yeah. Uh, special advisors may well have come and gone uh, in the same period of time, but the degree of consistency is helpful. It also does indicate, though, that there may be a degree of complacency sometimes, but I don't see that clearly with Guy, nor do you, I believe, uh, and, and we didn't see that with, with Steve, because there are always things to do, and, and there are always things to try and improve upon, and because they were passionate about their topic. And, and they worked hard, you know, that helps, doesn't it? They do, oh, it does, I mean, you know, it, I remember going to Glen Eagles at the time when Steve was the minister, and the person who's now Secretary of State for Health, well, Sajid Javid, was the... He's Treasury Minister. He's the Treasury Minister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they both did their respective presentations, and you've been to Glenny, you also. It's a big gathering yeah. of all the great and the good. Well, um, plus us, yeah. Uh, yes, there are yeah, people <laughs> hanging around the, uh, the fringes. I, I had to present on, on that occasion to JP Morgan asked me. But anyway, so Shazi Javid did his piece in terms of here's where we're at and stood at a lectern and talked to the audience and tried to tell a few jokes. And, and Steve Webb wandered around the stage, said a little, but uh, wanted more questions than he, than he, he wanted to contribute by way of uh, a you know, set piece. And the engagement, therefore, the, the difference in engagement is so palpable. Yes. I'm not saying that Javid was not necessarily a good minister at the Treasury and what he did, but the way in which he engaged, as contrast to how Webb engaged, was, was just so distinct. And you have that with Guy Opperman. So, you know, Lancers, in fact, Guy Opperman as their spokesman at the uh, at the fringe events that we hold at party conferences, and he always goes down incredibly well. And you know, you, you know why, because you know you're gonna get an open, engaged conversation with, with Guy, and you're going to get 
the kind of analysis which people want, who are, you know, the geeks like us, where he'll throw in a, you know, a piece of insight that he shouldn't really be talking about. And you know, therefore, you're dealing with a human being who is a good politician at the same time. And and, and you want you know, a, a lot more of that, frankly. I'm not saying that there aren't more like I. I'm saying that we probably do need more uh, like that who are allowed to do their own thing. Leave yeah. aside the tribal or leave aside the fact that they might have voted for somebody else or on something else. If they're good at their topic, then let, let, let's give them a good run at it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And so I remember talking to Sajid Javid at that, that event and I've seen him speak at other events. And, you know, I don't want to be disloyal to a, to a Bristol man, but... <laughs> but you know, and I've heard people speak highly of him, so maybe it's just my praise of him. And by the way, you know, I've saw people used to rant on about Boris having this kind of charisma and being kind of engaging and characterful. And the one time I've actually been in the room with Boris, I was distinctly underwhelmed by him. Whereas by contrast, the one time I've been in a room with Gordon Brown, who I'd always perceived to be rather dry and boring, I was really taken with him. I thought, oh, this is a really cool guy. I'm really, you know, he came across much better in person than he had on television. Well, so coming back to Sajid Javid, I actually found him a bit, you know, he just felt like he was being a bit lazy with his speech and he was just kind of going through the motions of the boat. But certainly two times I've seen him deliver speeches. I thought, well, is that it? Is that all you've got? As I say, others others have a different view of him. So others have said he's a really bright guy, very hardworking, but that's not what I saw when I... Well, the limited amount of contact I'd had with him. So I'm there. I'm burning bridges now. So yeah, you you have completely. So don't go down to the local infirmary in Bristol when he's there at the same time. <laughs> he, he, he might have just heard this. You never know. Yeah, so I, I think we're probably safe that such a job is not listening to my podcast. But you, know, yeah, yeah, but you mentioned yeah. officials because that was something else I wanted to pick up on. How how important is the relationship with the policy teams and the officials behind behind the ministers within the departments? And and you're right. Sometimes they change almost faster than the ministers do. But talk to me a bit about that, those relationships and how important you see those relationships in terms of connecting your clients and the people you work yeah. for with decision-making processes. There's a great value in, in what we do in ensuring that you, you don't underestimate the, the people who effectively do all of the work or even start to develop the work that is undertaken by somebody that might be presented to a minister. So don't underestimate all of the level of officials you deal with. There is a bit of a mistake to think, actually, let's just focus upon the minister or their special advisor, because that's all you need to do. You need to influence the political thinking around it. The reality is, no, you need to do the hard yards with people who day in, day out, understand like you do, in fact, probably more so, the technical depth in the areas but nonetheless, what they haven't quite got is the mandate that the minister will have to move it forward. They'll go, no, sorry, this is the box in which I'm doing my little piece of pension policy, and that's all I'm doing at the moment. And then we spend a lot of our time just trying to knit together that patchwork of, okay, so they're, work they're working on this. Their boss is the person to speak to in terms of trying to convince them that they need to do the next level of iteration. And to going back to Gordon Brown, where, um, and you know this, but nonetheless, I, I worked with Steve B you know, back in the day a lot, 
trying to achieve. I bought uh, one of his comics change. recently. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's much more likely to be uh, interested in that now than, yeah. he, than he is in terms of what his day job was and probably is. But Sorry, so we, we worked a lot when he was at Scottish Life yeah. before Royal London, uh, and Royal London actually, to try and uh, look at all of the then eight different pension schemes to which you know they could be simplified. And, and it was all flying in the face of then Gordon Brown's treasury to try and actually introduce simplification, which like you think uh, that's bizarre standing back now. But nonetheless, the people that were really for this and who wanted to understand it was HMRC, because they could conceive that the, the complexity associated with it meant that it was complex for them. They, they, they had to do too many things. Yeah. There were too many schemes that they had to look at. So a lot of the work we did was with officials to understand how the policy needed to change, why it needed to change, how to influence the politicians, ultimately, that it was in the best interest for them to sign off on something which might cost money, but ultimately would produce the, the, a better outcome. So there was a lot of work then, and, and subsequently, that was just a long time ago, but uh, subsequently then with officials, particularly the, because they're the ones that, that will write or at least instruct uh, parliamentary draftsmen on pensions bills, for example. So when you're seeking to put together an amendment on a pensions bill, then you need to understand why the person has written it in that way. And they're mostly likely to be officials in the DWP or Treasury. And therefore, if you don't know where they're coming from, then you're most unlikely to be able to put together a reasoned argument as to why a change might be necessary. Because the industry, our industry, are pretty good at understanding what actually would be beneficial and wouldn't be beneficial. And yes, they may argue their own corner, but nonetheless, that's why we're there. We're trying to influence better public policy outcomes through legislation. But you only get to do that by understanding what the officials can and cannot do and how you can therefore help them be better at their job. And don't underestimate what they can therefore do in their own right outside of those meetings that you've had. Because if you manage to influence a degree of change and there's a minister who understands and can see that that is likely to be something that is necessary, for example, like a Steve Webber, John Glenn or Guy Opperman, then, then you you know you're heading in a, in the right direction. And do you find those officials are, are receptive to, you know, the private sector coming along and saying, oh, you know, we'd really like it if you change this rule to say that, and uh, and, and do you know, getting the meetings with them, getting the opportunities to talk that stuff through with them? Do you do you, I mean, do you, do you find that challenging? It, it's been challenging for the last few years for obvious reasons, but and it, it's always challenging, particularly if they don't want to or they know where you're coming from, or they. they they can see that from a mile away what it is that you're seeking to achieve. So, I mean, it's all about putting your arguments together and ensuring that there's, yeah. a, there's a reasoned why you want to have a discussion with them about a particular area of change. It can take a long time, actually. I mean, when you're putting together something which tries to change something which is quite fundamental, then then you have to you have to figure out that it's a five-year tilt at something like that. Yes, yeah, so then you've got to manage your clients' expectations, right? You do that. Why and haven't you the, changed the, the law yet, Ralph? Yeah, no, <laughs> the, and then the critical component part of that, which you know all about and lobbying, is that, that it's not only the current officials in place and the current ministers in place, it's the ones who could replace them. Yeah. 
And so, you know, trying to get consensus from opposition or trying to get at least an understanding from whoever the opposition are of the day is part and parcel of what you have to do. Because you know that those officials may be in post after an election where a new minister comes in who's been briefed by you to implement a change that you think uh, they ought to do. And you've been trying to brief the officials beforehand and lo and behold, you know, something there was serendipity arise and they go, oh yeah, yeah we, th- we think we should do this. Interesting because Mike O'Brien was one of those ministers a long while ago who was involved at the development of what then became PRA and FCA. Yeah. And, and at the time, the, the whole regulatory regime was a, was a bit, you know, all over the place. But again, he was... What, like now? Engaged. You know, we're not that much better off now. <laughs> no, no, we, we, we've been there for a long time, haven't we? But, but at least he engaged with a lot of stakeholders yeah. to try and yeah. understand what it might mean when he was in opposition. Yes, where we are right now is 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 not necessarily perfect, but nonetheless, it, it, it's, it's what we've got. You, you won't find me talking about the regulators in potentially the same way as others, but nonetheless, I'm quite happy to reflect upon them. No, but also, I mean, you were talking about, you know, engaging with, with members of the opposition, and but also, and I'd mentioned the committees before, I mean, so we've had some pretty powerful committee chairs uh, yeah. Over the years, you know, Andrew Tyree, Frank Field. I mean, Stephen Timms, I think, is brilliant, and, and you know, he's definitely one who understands pensions, right? Absolutely. Um, and and so so those members of the committee can also be be really influential. In I mean, they can't dictate government policy, but they can put stuff on the agenda, can't they? And they can get yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, that's the role of the select committee, and, and, and the people listening to this would know that that the, the, the role of the select committee to monitor the work of the department that they are that they're following so if it's dwp or treasury or any other base any other select committee they've got a powerful role to play in influencing current policy as well as looking at future policy and therefore the committee structure and particularly the chair is quite important in terms of another person on your lobbying list if you like to, uh, to ensure that they are aligned with uh, your thinking. Because cool. they can be quite a for them. Field was a minister um, yes. under the Blair government. He was then a long-standing chair of the, uh, of the select committee. A good example of somebody with experience taking that into a role like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also interesting seeing Julian Knight ex-journalist getting himself elected in the West Midlands and from what I heard playing an absolute blinder to get himself into the chair of the DCMS Culture, Media and Sports Committee yeah. um, and taking his, taking his journalistic experience into a committee that's something he really cared about. Yes, I'm sure he's, he's delighted in the prospect of having Nadine Doris in front of him every so often <laughs> to, to ask the right questions in the right way. Well, I suppose somebody must be. Right? Yeah, well, no, yeah, they have to. If you've seen the cover of the current private eye, you'll see her respond upon other people as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have seen that one. Well, she's, yeah. she's, she's a gift that keeps on giving, isn't she? Well, so, the, 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 the broader context here, I, I think, Tom, is we let the politicians that we finally get as government, as we more broadly, the electorate, provide that. And then it goes into some kind of lottery where, you de- depending upon who's the person that you know, ends up as the leader of a particular party and then ends up as the prime minister, collects around them people are either they are dispensing favours to mm. or actually they're the right kind of people to do the job because they've done it before. And, and you know, that's what you have all the time. And I'm not sim- oversimplifying 
that process. But the role, therefore, of the officials, if you like, the, the standing army of people who have to ensure that incoming lot need to understand what the outgoing lot um, had done and what therefore needs to be done is important because, you know, within the next two years, we'll, we will be reflecting upon, you know, what kind of government we, we, we would like going forward. So it's quite important then that you know, all of the people we've talked about who can influence that in terms of, you know, holding power to account are, are, are still doing that. And that includes the media as a very important audience not just on on politics in general, but on, on pensions specifically as well, played an important role in ensuring that is reflected properly. The trade media, probably the best at that, I would say, than some in the nationals, but nonetheless, they, they all play an important role. Yeah, and one of the things that I regret having watched over the last 20 years has been the struggles that the media has gone through. And we do still have a trade media, and we do still have some really good quality personal finance journalists working in the consumer press. But it is much diminished from where it was, say, 20 years ago as a result of you know, the pressures of the BBC and the internet and trying to reinvent their business model to hold their heads above water. And it's been good to see that publications like the FT and, and the Guardian and the Times and the Telegraph do now appear stable. And, uh, you know, the Mail, they seem to seem seem to have a future but you know there's a lot of big titles that have fallen by the wayside in the meantime and i know the trade media too has has really had you know is fighting for its living and as you've said they are really important you know they are they're an important channel i mean okay they thrive upon advertising and that's fallen off a cliff in some respects and so they rely upon the the likes of google and, and others to to underpin that but the role that they play in in analyzing a range of issues in whatever sector, but let's take pensions, is critically important because um, they reflect upon what's going on. This change nearly every day, whether we know it or not. And and there's development every day, there's progress in new product, there's new ways of talking about things. And, and And the media therefore have an important role to play in not only communicating that and informing people about what that looks like. And they have an, they do have an important communications role, particularly around, you know, things like, you know, you should be saving, you need to start saving earlier, you know, and here's how you need to go about it. But also to ensure that they hold those people to account who've got responsibility. So they will, whoever it may well be, interviewing the ministers or the the regulators to ensure that they've got the full understanding of where they're going and why. And then clearly, you know, the the industry relies upon the trade media to get their message across and uh, understand what it is that they're saying and doing about all sorts of things. It, it, it is a shame. It is a shame that the dilution of some parts of the media, particularly regionally, I mm. would I would say, has meant that some of that voice has been lost and that influence has been lost because. You, know, you, you and I, are, you know, uh, you know, don't come from London and from outside of London, and therefore know what what you know parts of the world look like, and and, and the people you work for are in in Scotland. But nonetheless, there are impressive parts of the media in different parts of the UK that are you know unsung heroes in terms of what they do and what they produce. And you find when you go to different parts of the country and talk to people in communities who really influences them. And whilst yes we've got the pervasive nature of social media is a, is an influence clearly. When people do you take or see or somehow look at 
a local publication which informs them about what they're doing, then that's more likely to be their source of insight and information than, for example, the BBC or a national media. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing. Yeah, true that. So you just hinted at the forthcoming general election, which I know is probably a couple of years away yet, but if it feels like we're starting to... You know, it's, it's appeared over the horizon at least, even if it's still some distance off. So unfair question for you, Ralph, is here we are, we're recording on the 28th of April, Ed Ball's Day. Is, is Boris going to lead the Conservative Party into the next general election? I don't think he will. And then I might be sticking my head on the block and there's a whole series of things which I'll have to come together for that not to be the case. But... Um, and, you know, people far wiser than me will have rehearsed all of these arguments or know the arguments well. There's a whole series of interrelated events which might indicate that I could be wrong and he could be that person that does it. I, I think at the heart of it comes something that he reflected upon this week, which is the, the, the fact that either he's an asset or he's a liability. And he cited that he's going to be an asset when it comes to the local elections next week. And he reflected upon that as to whether or not the people within the Conservative Party that need to understand whether that asset is the right asset as they go towards a general election. And that's not just the MPs. That, that is the wider party mm. in the country, including those people who are behind it from a resourcing perspective. They're the ones who probably be taking the judgment as to whether or not that asset is the right asset in the party as they approach a general election. So, you know, if if there is a further number of fines that come the way of people involved in work gatherings in Downing Street, and, and if if the Prime Minister is, is in that cohort, then what will that mean? Uh, if we're led to believe that post the uh, Metropolitan Police inquiry being resolved, then Sue Gray's report comes out, and according to one media title, it's going to be excoriating yes, in terms of what that. he yeah. says, yeah. then is that going to be more damaging? I, I think all of that is likely, but it comes down to whether or not those people who judge the value of the asset in place as the leader of their party, as to whether or not they think it's worthwhile to keep that person in place, frankly, uh, and for that person, therefore, to argue the case as to why they're kept in place, we don't know that yet. And I think that's going to be the determining factor. If the local elections next week show that actually there's a bit of a kickback uh, for whatever reason, which some people are reflecting, if the Labour Party showed a degree of, of cohesion around Starmer's narrative and trying to get onto the narrative which people really want to be bothered about, which is cost of living mm. um, and, and other issues. If if they strike the right chord, then then the polls where they are now will start to see an even bigger expanse between where they are yeah. and where yeah. the Conservatives are. So I, I think there's a degree to go. The unknowns include things that, they, that we are aware of, like Ukraine, but they also include other things that we probably, again, like we don't know that could happen domestically, which could impact upon the Prime Minister and his reputation. So I conclude that he might not, but only because there are a lot of things which could conspire to indicate to those people who ultimately want to stay in power and want to keep running in the country as to whether or not the asset that currently leads the parliamentary party is the right asset to lead them into the general election. Yeah, fair thoughts. There are a lot of moving parts, so this is not yeah. a binary question. Is it? I mean, it's a binary outcome, but there's, there's, 
there's a lot of factors to take into account. Space, and, yeah, uh, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll see more. So yeah, and I, I, it, it is hard to predict. I, I think the way in which all of those moving parts will come together will will produce some outcome. I don't think there'll be no outcome. Yeah. I, 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 but I, I, you know, and you might reflect upon, you know, you know, who is the alternative. I don't think there's a good one at the moment, and I think that's part of the is this the right asset argument. Yeah, no, I was listening to uh, Steve Richards' political podcast. Yeah. Big fan of his. I think he does yeah, really good too. stuff. And he was talking about you know the factors that come together for a party to defenestrate their leader, and how what you might be looking for is pressure from within the cabinet. And you made the point that there's no, you know, Rishi Sunak's fine, hasn't done him any favours and his stock has fallen in the polls. And and if there's not that momentum within inside the cabinet to, to get rid of the leader, then it becomes much harder for that to happen. Uh, yeah, I'm paraphrasing him. But. No, and Steve Richards is quite right and a good analyst. That they, you know, so Johnson's defenestrated some of his opposition over previous uh, reshuffles. And whatever this next reshuffle looks like, what he can ill afford to do is ditch somebody to the back benches who could organise in that way. So he'll keep Sunak and Gove close and trust close. I, I mean, you, you, you can't see that, you know, any of the likely front runners are likely to be dispensed with at a time which is, you know, highly, highly likely to be in the pre-election period. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, whatever will come with the eventual reshuffle, I, I think he's a canny enough person to know that the team he's got to have, the team where either I go down uh, on my own or actually I'm going to bring people down with me. So I'm, I'm likely to bring people down with me so you need to stay close. He's, uh, he's certainly shown good survival instincts so far, hasn't he? So. He has, as both mayor, as well, MP, mayor, journalist, all, and now prime minister. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's shown that he's, he's probably smarter than people give him the, uh, the credit for. Always oh, not as not not as stupid as people probably believe him to be because he's not. You don't reach that position. So let's okay, let's but. just. I wanted to swing it back to pensions, and you'd mentioned, and we talked a bit earlier on about the simplification stuff that happened, sort of pre two thousand and six under under Gordon Brown at the Treasury, and so just even I, I was struck over the last ten years. We went through this period between sort of a day in two thousand and six, and then maybe around twenty seventeen when there was just something happening all the time with pensions. You know, you had the yeah. run-up to auto-enrolment and you had the creation of Nest and then you had the coalition government and you had all of cuts to pension allowances and you had state pension reforms under Steve Webb, was it around 2012, 2013? And then, then you had sort of the roll-through of auto-enrolment itself and, and pension freedoms. And there was that period of constant disruption. We had the Treasury review of pension taxation in 2016 that then led to the lifetime ISA. And, and so, I mean, which is why I spent a lot of time doing media work over that period, because there was just there was always a pension story in the news. And that was, that was a lot of fun. And then we got to about 2017, and it did start to die off a bit then. And relatively, it's been quieter in the last two or three years. And there's still stuff going on. I um, mean, there's things like Pension Dashboard, and we had Rob Yule from the ABI on this podcast yeah. recently, and he was talking about all the stuff that the ABI is focused on. And, you know, there's a lot going on there still. 
But I guess my question to you, Ralph, would be in terms of, you know, you you proudly wear that lobbyist hat, which, by the way, I was going to pick up on this, you know, post-David Cameron, lobbyists, it's always been a slightly tainted word. So in a minute, I I want you to give a defense to the noble art of lobbying. But the question I was heading towards before I got distracted then was, you know, what's coming next, Ralph? You know, you're advising your financial services clients, you know, what's, what's the stuff to focus on coming next? So the, 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 the clear focus is where we're at now is an affordability crisis in some respects, that people who, the, the description you identified a while ago on this conversation is that you know, people who can afford to save uh, will do so and can do so, and those who can't clearly won't. So that is still the case. There's still a cohort in society who, who will not be able to provide for themselves going forward. That is still a crunch that is likely to happen. Irrespective of all of the culmination of things that you've indicated, including uh, the workplace savings, which is a good thing, clearly, all of those things are still at the heart of people's thinking as they reach a, a point in time where they go, what am I going to get at some point when I'm going to be retiring at an age which is increasingly going to be uh, going up, not down. Mm. Um, What am I going to get? What have I got that I'm going to be able to put towards that? And is that going to be sufficient? That is still the critical question that everyone needs to ask themselves. And so whilst, whilst some who can will be able to answer that question in a I should be okay kind of way, I think that increasingly there's parts of society where the answer is still uncertain. And so that has to be on the minds of everyone when uh, looking at innovation as to whether or not affordability to save is a, a policy dynamic that, that, that never goes away. And it's something that, that, that they need to look at. So the industry, the regulator, politicians, all of those who influence that, should be geared towards ensuring that more people, the many, not the few, can be looking ahead a bit more confidently than they would be in terms of what their futures might look like for them and their families. I think that that would be the right yeah. the right way to, to look at this. And just on, on, on lobbying per se, whilst it is the term that is utilised, the, the, the way in which we seek to influence and people like you seek to influence uh, has been there for generations. Uh, the fact that you know the former prime minister has now been portrayed as a lobbyist for the person that he acted for when he left office—that is David Cameron—doesn't doesn't mean that, that that there's something particularly bad about that. That's a whole different cohort of individuals who were once in government, whether you're a civil servant or a minister, who've got certain sets of rules which apply to them, yes. um, which are not always observed in the right way. We, and I was involved in the setting up of the industry response to how commercial lobbyists are regulated by the government, and there is a commercial lobbying register for the government. I was involved in the setting up and running of that along with other people like Ian Anderson. Yeah, I was going to mention um, Ian. He's, he's been very prominent in that. Yeah, no, he has. I mean, you know, we were on the committee together and we, we crunched time with the then regulator to ensure that they understood what it is that we did was not the the kind of thing which the media were reporting upon as being the the lobbying scandals and scams of the past because it's it's a very finite register in terms of the people who are involved in it the commercial lobbyists the people 
that act for companies are not always included in it. The people who act for law firms are not included in it. And so the scope of it is not as wide as you might think. So for those of us who are in it, who have to do our regular quarterly updates, who have to say who we work for and, and have to indicate who we've met from a government perspective, there's a degree of transparency in and around that. So we're pleased actually that there's something in place which enables us to say that we do our job effectively and properly. And that's why we can say as Lansons that you know we are part of that and that if you are going to come to work with us and we're going to be involved in that, then you can be very clear about you know what we do in terms of reporting who we work for and who we act for, including people that you've worked for before, Tom, for example. Well, indeed. Um, so yeah. that... Yeah. Sorry, go on. So no, I was just going to be nice about you there and just to sort of make the observation that I, yeah, when I was at Hargreaves Lansdowne, we did work with Lansons, and one of the reasons we worked with Lansons is because we could see that you were, a, a, you know, a well-run business with good standards, and I always liked Tony and Claire and and the way they go about their business and the culture of the business, uh, and you know things things like the charitable donations and the sort of equal opportunity stuff. I mean, there's a lot of good culture there that I've always admired about. Yeah, that's right. And we, we got the, the, the gender pay gap is fantastic yeah. in this business. High number of uh, females involved at a senior level and throughout the business. But yeah, you're quite right. The standards and ethical approach that we take and the clear experience and capability we've got in financial services and other sectors is is something that you know we take with pride but it's 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 also therefore a distinguishing factor when you look at the whole lobbying sector in terms of you know what 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 are they doing are they are they using their mates to get influence or are they using their expertise to to try to influence in the right way? And we've always done the latter. We've tried to mm. make sure that we we influence policy. We don't necessarily tr- seek to influence personalities to get that policy change. Well, that is clearly part of it. But that's that's the lobbying landscape in a nutshell. Really, that's the kind of two different approaches. And we've always tried to do it properly, and and um, we will we'll endeavour to do so wherever that might be, both uh, domestically and internationally. Yeah, yeah. And actually, just on that point, when I was briefly working inside the DWP last year, and it was the first time I'd ever kind of put one foot inside of government, the government machine. I was, I was an external contractor, but I was sort of one foot inside the government and working with a team of DWP people. And I was struck then how, when you look at, you look at peer over the fence from the other side, how obvious it is that it is really helpful to them to have people who on the outside who know what they're talking about with whom they can have sensible conversations about the impact of policy change and and you know they do need that they they need they need people like you Ralph yeah they do and you know and you cited Chris Curry and 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 others of that type you know the people who who have been around and independently will be able to offer insight analysis experience to to somebody who might not have always had access to that. I, and I was talking to a former DWP minister, you know, only recently, who had been moaning the fact that whilst the expertise wasn't always within the department, that actually what they then 
realise is that actually, if they looked deeper, the, the expertise was there. It was also outside of the department, but they just didn't always know which places to look in the right way. And that is why, correctly, people like you and others who get brought in every so often, I think, refresh that need for uh, that level of expertise, because you can become a little bit stale if you've been in one department for a long period of time, and you need, therefore, that external stimulus to keep you uh, fresh in terms of some of the uh, issues that you deal with. So, yeah, we're, uh, we're pleased to be involved in all of that and look forward to continuing to you know press the case for continuing change, because um, that has to be a good thing. Well, and I also think that this last few minutes of this podcast have turned into a bit of a mutual appreciation session between the Lancasters and, and Lanson. Yeah. So, so it's probably a good note to finish on. Oh, yeah, no, no, it is. And, so, and due respect to Mark Paulson and everybody else at the Lancaster as well. You know, I genuinely do believe that the world in which we inhabit and what you're trying to do through this as well ensures that you know there's a there's a rich diversity of not only thought but debate around things that matter and uh, and everybody who should have an opinion can have an opinion so more power to you to to enable us to do that fantastic it's been great to talk to you thanks Ralph. and to you tom thanks bye I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.